0: Uh, last night we had a cartoon night with the girls watching classic looney tunes during supper. Bugs Bunny is timeless, man. Did 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 we all grow up watching Bugs Bunny to some in some capacity? Uh, it'll never go out of style. It's just as funny to me now as it was when I watched it every single Saturday morning as a 7-year-old, 8-year-old, 12-year-old. Um, actually when a few years ago when the girls were still little, I think Zoe was still in kindergarten, we used to watch Teletoon Retro and couldn't wait for Looney Tunes to come on. Just, I love it. But here's the thing about Bugs Bunny. Every episode is essentially the same, right? Especially when he's battling Elmer Fudd or Yosemite Sam. There's a catalog of maybe 10 jokes, 10 tricks that Bugs has that he pulls on his enemies uh, to escape being shot and to elicit... Laughs from us, the audience. There's the rapid fire. You know the thing he does where it's a duck season, rabbit season, duck season, rabbit season, duck season, rabbit season, duck season, I say it's duck season. And so he tricks them by turning their words against them. You know that trick he does? Um, Turns his attacker's words against them. Wins the war of wits. There's the uh, plugged or, or twisted gun trick that he'll... And then they fire and it shoots back at them. Blows up in Elmer's face. There's the special delivery where... The bad, the bad guy's chasing Bugs, and he stops and has a present for them, and they're all suddenly very grateful, and they open it, and it's obviously a stick of dynamite, and they blow up. It's a good trick. And, of course, there's the strangest one of all. If you really think about the day and age when these cartoons were made, in pretty much every episode, I don't know if you notice this, but Bugs always dresses in drag. He always puts on women's clothing, and he's very attractive. And Elmer and Yosemite Sam, they howl, and they catcall a rabbit, who they're attempting to fricassee it. It's a very strange thing, and it happens like every episode. Always in drag. There's others, of course, but the point is, it's the same jokes over and over and over and over. Same with Roadrunner and Wily e. Coyote. there's It's the same tricks. He thinks he's got them, but the momentum doesn't quite carry him enough, or he runs off a cliff, or there's not a huge store of jokes, right? They're just the same joke over and over, just altered slightly to fit the situation, which means, which means in the case of Yosemite Sam or Elmer Fudd, you'd think that they'd learn already, right? Because it's the same trick over and over, you think they would learn. They, they just keep, Elmer and Yosemite Sam, they just keep making the same boneheaded mistakes on endless repeat. When will they finally wise up? Just when you're getting into a war of words with Bugs Bunny, just don't say the thing that will get you in trouble right? Check the barrel of your gun before firing it. Make sure it's clean and clear and not tied in a bow tie. Don't open the special package that appears to be ticking. And check for fuzzy tails and suppressed rabbit ears before falling for the cute blonde in the too tight skirt. Learn from your own history or be doomed to repeat it. Well, last week, Stephen took us on a tour through the patriarchs. That's Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, uh, Jacob's sons, especially Joseph. Um, bypassing some of the more familiar stories of these heroes, Stephen instead focused on these three things. And this is where Chris Lance does his best imitation of Bugs Bunny and Elmer Fudd and uh, repeats the same thing over and over from week to week. It's the same thing, you've heard me over and over. But these three things are critically important in Stephen's speech. Number one, a God who is not confined to specific locations. Number two, A worship of God that's not confined to specific locations, namely the temple or the tabernacle. And number three, a people of God who constantly reject his truth and his truth tellers. Abraham proved that God doesn't require a promised land in order to make promises regarding land. He made a promise for land with Abraham that Abraham would never see except to pass through. God was at work hundreds of miles from Israel in the land of Ur. He was remembering and fulfilling promises in the powerful foreign pagan nation of Egypt. That's where God remembers his promises to Abraham and starts to fulfill them. And there, Abraham and Joseph were named as examples of men who worshipped God with obedience and faithfulness and integrity, despite having no law to follow. That God had just told them to follow and to obey. And yet, even these heroes experienced rejection. Most notably, Joseph, who told the truth and was sold into slavery for it by his own brothers. And that's where Stephen's speech left off. God's people, the Hebrews, exploding in population as God promised, but experiencing slavery and oppression as God had also promised. That's where Stephen left off with the patriarchs. The question is, what will God do to remember his promises? And will God's people remember their history of errors? Or will they be like Elmer and Yosemite Sam and get tripped up by a misunderstanding of Stephen's big three principles? Finally, how does this all relate to Stephen's audience, the Sanhedrin? And how does it relate to you and I? Let's read chapter 7, verses 20 to 43. At that time, Moses was born, a beautiful child in God's eyes. His parents cared for him at home for three months, When they had to abandon him, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and raised him as her own son. Moses was taught all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was powerful in both speech and action. One day, when Moses was 40 years old, he decided to visit his relatives, the people of Israel. He saw an Egyptian mistreating an Israelite, so Moses came to the man's defense and avenged him, killing the Egyptian. Moses assumed his fellow Israelites would realize that God had sent him to rescue them, but they didn't. The next day he visited them again and saw two men of Israel fighting. He tried to be a peacemaker. Men, he said, you are brothers. Why are you fighting each other? But the man in the wrong pushed Moses aside. Who made you a ruler and judge over us? he asked. Are you going to kill me as you killed that Egyptian yesterday? When Moses heard that, he fled the country and lived as a foreigner in the land of Midian. (laughs) There his two sons were born. Forty years later, in the desert near Mount Sinai, An angel appeared to Moses in the flame of a burning bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. As he went to take a closer look, the voice of the Lord called out to him, I am the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Moses shook with terror and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off your sandals, for you are standing on holy ground. I have certainly seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I have heard their groans and have come down to rescue them. Now go! for I am sending you back to Egypt. So God sent back the same man his people had previously rejected when they demanded, Who made you a ruler and judge over us? Through the angel who appeared to him in the burning bush, God sent Moses to be their ruler and savior. And by means of many wonders and miraculous signs, he led them out of Egypt through the Red Sea and through the wilderness for 40 years. Moses himself told the people of Israel, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own people. Moses was with our ancestors, the assembly of God's people in the wilderness, when the angels spoke to him at Mount Sinai. And there Moses received life-giving words to pass on to us. But our ancestors refused to listen to Moses. They rejected him and wanted to return to Egypt. They told Aaron, Make us some gods who can lead us, for we don't know what has come of this Moses who brought us out of Egypt. So they made an idol shaped like a calf, and they sacrificed to it and celebrated over this thing they had made. Then God turned away from them, and abandoned them to serve the stars of heaven and the, as their gods. In the book of the prophets it is written, Was it to me you were bringing sacrifices and offerings during those 40 years in the wilderness, Israel? No. You carried your pagan gods, the shrine of Molech, the star of the god Rephan, and the images you made to worship them. So I will send you into exile as far away as Babylon. And that's where we'll stop today. There are three distinct eras in the life of Moses, each marked by a tradition of 40 years, and Stephen touches on all three of them. There's Moses the prince raised in the house of Egypt, that's verses 20 to 28. There's Moses, the exiled shepherd in Midian, who eventually meets God at the burning bush, that's verses 29 to 34. And finally there's Moses, God's chosen redeemer of Israel and deliverer of the law, that's verses 35 to 43. As you can likely guess, Stephen's message of the three principles shines through in all three areas of Moses' life. It's hard to escape the fact that, though Moses was born a Hebrew and circumcised into the covenant, he spent his formative years in the wealth and splendor and wisdom of the Egyptians, the Middle Eastern superpower of the time. A foreign slave, raised as a prince in a foreign land, rising to supreme authority. God at work in a land far from the promised land. That's Stephen's first principle. But it was not through Egyptian power and glory that God would work through Moses. No, Moses needed to be humbled and outcasted before he was ready to encounter God on the mountain. And that humiliating exile came about in a prime example of Stephen's third principle, a rejected deliverer. Now, it should come as no surprise that that an Egyptian king would reject Yahweh's divine authority and seek to punish God's people. That's what happened. From Joseph to Moses, that's what had happened. The Egyptian kings came to fear and hate the Hebrews and persecute, persecute them harshly. That shouldn't surprise us. Pagan kings are always doing this to God's people, rejecting his truth. But what is surprising and what is particularly highlighted by Stephen is the fact that along with Pharaoh... God's chosen people, the Hebrews, are themselves participating in the rejection of God's chosen deliverer. As as Moses comes to the defense of one of his own people, slaying an Egyptian guard who was abusing a Hebrew slave, Moses is shocked to find out that his intervention wasn't appreciated. In fact, it's thrown back in his face with scorn and derision. Who made you a ruler and judge over us? Are you going to kill me as you killed that Egyptian yesterday? Moses thought he was bringing freedom, and deliverance, and salvation. And instead it gets thrown back in his face as mockery. Who do you think you are? You think you're some ruler and judge over us? What, are you going to kill me like you killed that Egyptian? Moses sought to bring justice to his people. Instead he receives mockery. And so, reading the situation properly, Moses flees into the wilderness. For 40 more years, he would wander in a land very, very far from the land that God had promised to Abraham. Here's a map. Uh, You can just barely see Jerusalem. Uh, In fact, you can't because it's so small. But this is Jerusalem here. So this is Israel, kind of the southern border of Israel here. Here's Midian. That's where Moses ended up. Very, very far. Moses, like Abraham and the patriarchs, became a wandering pilgrim in a foreign land. This was such a crucial part of Moses' identity that he named his son in honor of this aspect of his identity. One of his sons was named Gershom. Gershom literally means a sojourner there because that's who Moses was. After he left Egypt, he was a wandering pilgrim. He was a foreigner in a foreign land. He was a sojourner. But God was at work there in Midian, hundreds of miles from the promised land. God was still at work. And so, after 40 years of the humble shepherding life, God would call Moses to shepherd God's firstborn child, the nation of Israel. And God would do this in a very unexpected manner. Just as in the story of Abraham, God unexpectedly called an unexpected old man living in an unexpected foreign land to follow him and covenant with him. Or just as in the story of Joseph, God unexpectedly rose the unexpected youngest son of Jacob to become second in command over the most powerful of all the foreign nations. So too, as with those two stories, so too in the story of Moses, would God unexpectedly reveal his name and nature to an unexpected exile, calling him to return unexpectedly to a foreign superpower and buckle its knees by the power of Yahweh. God is doing work outside of his borders again, as he is prone to do, as he is sovereign and able and willing to do, much to the chagrin of the Sanhedrin hearing Stephen's call. God is not restricted by borders. Here he is in Midian, which is literally the middle of nowhere. It's wilderness, far away from the promised land that God had promised to Abraham. But there is God doing good work. Unexpected work. Very unexpected. Because the way that that his deliverance comes for his people is through a tiny little bush on a dusty old mountain in the middle of nowhere. Moses beholds the burning bush, when a divine voice suddenly invokes the name of the patriarchs, saying, as it says here in Acts, I am the God of your fathers Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This God knows his history with his own people. He has not forgotten, as verse 34 makes clear. He will not abandon them to their cycle of pain and oppression, like a million enslaved Elmer Fuds, constantly looking down the barrel of the Egyptian oppression machine. He sees them, he hears them, he knows all about them, and now he's going to do something about it. The same God who made covenant promises to Abraham is the same God who is now taking an enormous next step with Moses to ensure that those promises come true. He's the same God who began shaping his people through Abraham. The same God who's revealing his plans to save his people through this shocked and fearful shepherd on a mountain in the middle of Midian. But first, did you notice how Stephen... Uh, pauses to accent Moses' sandals. Why the sudden focus on Moses' footwear, or more specifically, as with your local pastor, lack of footwear? Well, a quick geographic reminder. Moses is at Mount Sinai at the moment. Here's Mount Sinai down here. Um, is Mount Sinai in Jerusalem? No. Is it in Judea? No. Is it even in Israel at all? No. Is it anywhere near the promised land? No, not really. Moses is not standing in the veiled Holy of Holies within the inner sanctum of the lavished gold and cedar temple in Jerusalem. He's not in the middle of the temple. The Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant is, the most holy place on earth. He's not there. Moses isn't surrounded by high priests and cherubim and incense. He's not there. That would, those would all be signifiers of holiness. Moses is instead in some dusty crevice of a backwater mountain in the middle of nowhere, averting his eyes from a miraculous piece of flaming shrubbery. This is not an inherently holy place. It's not holy in and of itself. It's just some place, just some holiness. It might as well be the slimy dugout in the middle of the abandoned pasture behind the Lance family farm. It's just nowhere in the middle of nowhere. It's not a special place. And yet... Moses kicks off his sandals and trembles with fear and refuses to look at the overwhelming force of pure holiness that he's encountering. That dusty old mountain was holy ground for one reason and one reason only. God was occupying it. God was there. God was present. And that made it holy. And for the duration of that bush's burning, Mount Sinai became the holiest place on planet Earth, at least as holy as the inner curtains of the temple on festival days at least is holy God was made manifest there he became real he was always real but he became real in a way that you could experience and feel his voice was heard there his name was spoken there his plan was unveiled there his servant was commissioned there and that otherwise forgettable hill in an otherwise forgettable foreign land far from the land of promise became holy It became holy land, though it was miles from the holy land. And it became so because God showed up. Because God was present. It's just further evidence of Stephen's principle number two. The temple in Jerusalem does not hold exclusive claim to the holy places where unholy people tremble before the power of the Almighty. That doesn't need to happen just at the temple. That's Stephen's message for the Sanhedrin here. Holy ground is anywhere where a holy God makes his presence known and felt. It doesn't need to be the temple. And as we'll see, in the case of Stephen, God is actually moving on from the temple. He no longer needs the temple. The temple doesn't represent that presence of holiness anymore. You want a spoiler alert as to what represents the holy presence of God? It's you. It's it's us. The same way that God manifest himself in holiness and power with the burning bush, that same power, that same presence is now in you. And wherever you go, there goes the holy presence of a holy God. God can make himself known anywhere. And wherever he does so, it becomes a holy place. No temple required. And no sandals required either. Moses himself would later make this principle abundantly clear as he later delivered the law from this very mountain, Mount Sinai, um, some months later, when he says in Exodus 20, verse 24, In every place, says Yahweh, where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. It's a pretty powerful theological statement for Moses to make, for God to make through Moses. This is just, I mean, in that same speech, he would unveil the plans for the tabernacle. Or if not the same speech, he would go back up the mountain and hear the plans. So within days, he'd give the plans for the tabernacle, the holy place for for God's presence. But Moses makes it clear, before ever there was a tabernacle, before ever there was a temple, that you don't need special places for God to be specially present and holy. Wherever, wherever God's name is remembered, wherever his people turn to him and remember him and call to him, there is holy ground because God will arrive will arrive in love to bless his people there is no sacred ground on planet earth there isn't there is no special place that is holy any place where god is becomes holy that's stephen's message to the sanhedrin wherever the name of god is remembered god arrives in love to bless his people it's not dependent on fancy lavish buildings It's not dependent on a magical incantation of special words to invoke his presence. It just requires worship, and his presence will be found. Stephen then leaves the burning bush encounter. So that's the second stage of Moses' life now complete, and the third stage beginning. And here Stephen really begins to lay into the Sanhedrin. I prefer the NIV to my translation, which I read you earlier. Because in the NIV, it really captures the sense of how Stephen is really getting fired up here. Each of verses 35 to 38 begins in basically the same way. This is the same Moses who... dot dot dot. So four times in a row, this is the same Moses who... It's the same Moses who... This is the same guy, Moses, who... Moses, the guy who... You can feel his rhetoric getting amped up. This is that Moses, he's saying to the Sanhedrin who does these amazing things. So what does he say in these four verses? In verse 35, he says, This man Moses, who had once been rejected by his people who mocked him, saying, Who made you our ruler and judge? Well, guess what? He's coming back. The power of God sent him back from Midian to Egypt as their ruler and deliverer. In the same way that he had been mocked by the people he came to save, now he returns with power to become those same titles that he had thrown in his face like that eat those words Elmer Fudd it's like when Elmer says rabbit season duck season rabbit season duck season and now those words are being turned back on them who made you judge and deliverer judge and ruler well God has that's who God has made him judge and deliverer and he's sending him back it's that same Moses verse 36 this guy Moses this same Moses He's the man who brought them out after performing wonders and signs in Egypt and the Red Sea. And again, are those places in Israel? Egypt, is that in Israel? No. Is the Red Sea in Israel? No. Was God present doing powerful, wonderful things? Yes. He is not restrained by any boundaries. And so this same man, Moses, through him, God performed these wonderful, powerful signs and miracles in a foreign land. He is not constrained by nations or borders. The same Moses. And then verse 37. And guess what, Sanhedrin? This is the same darn Moses who told the people of Israel, who you happen to be the leaders of, by the way, Sanhedrin. Moses says to the leaders, just as Stephen is now saying to the leaders, that God will raise up a prophet like me, like Moses, from among your brothers. And you, yes, even you, Sanhedrin, you ignorant Pharisees and Sadducees, You had better listen to him. I'm going to raise someone up on par with Moses, and maybe greater than Moses. Moses predicted this. Moses said, a prophet is coming greater than myself, and you had better listen to him. Well, guess what? The great prophet that Moses himself had predicted in Deuteronomy 18 has come. He has arrived. And you, Sanhedrin, you refuse to listen to him. You've been waiting for centuries, millennia, for this great prophet to rise up. He finally does, and you missed your chance. You turned from him. In fact, you oppressed him, and you crucified him. You murdered him. How did you treat the great prophet? Did you respect him? Did you listen to him like Moses commanded you to? No. The same way that Joseph had been treated by his brothers the first time, That's how you treated Jesus. The same way Moses had been treated by his own people when he tried to save them, as Jesus tried to save you, you treated Jesus the exact same way. You rejected him, you abused him, you cast him away, and you crucified him. In fact, you did worse to Jesus than Joseph's brothers did when they sold him into slavery. You did worse to Jesus than those Hebrew slaves said to Moses, who do you think you are? You did worse to Jesus than they did to those men, those heroes. You went so far as to crucify him. The same Moses who you revere, basically like God through his laws, because they love the laws more than they love God himself. That same Moses who you revere was pointing to the great prophet, and when he came, you murdered him. Do you hear Stephen's voice escalating here? Do you see the rhetoric ramping up? It's powerful. And well, guess what else, Sanhedrin? Joseph stood before his brothers a second time, but this time with power and glory that they could not deny. Moses arrived to deliver his people a second time, this time with power and glory they could not deny. And you guessed it, one day Jesus will come back a second time as well, And you'll be forced to stand before him in all his power and glory. Power and glory that far, far outstrips the power and glory of Joseph in his position of power in Egypt. Or Moses as he confronts the powers of Egypt with miracles, signs, wonders, plagues. That kind of glory and power will be increased infinity fold when Jesus returns. And you're going to have to stand before him. Just as Joseph stood before his brothers who rejected him. Just as Moses stood before the people who rejected him. You'll have to stand before Jesus. Then you'll really be the human equivalent of Yosemite Sam. All self righteous screaming and ignorant rage, coming face to face with supreme goodness. And your own weapons, your weapons of biblical interpretation and self righteousness, will just blow up in your face, just like it does for Sam. Because they simply could not learn from their mistakes. Like Yosemite Sam, like Elmer Fudd, they would not learn from their mistakes. Despite having Moses, yes, that same Moses in verse 38 pointing towards Jesus with every life giving word of law. But truth tellers, they're always rejected by God's people, aren't they? I worry about this for myself. What truth do I reject? Because it's new, because it, it's unexpected. Even Moses, who had been the agent of miracles that crushed Egypt, Moses, through whom plagues and Passover came, Moses, through whom seas were split and pillars of fire led the people through the wilderness. Even Moses, who climbed the mountain into God's presence amidst earthquakes and fire, a very tangible, real demonstration of God's power and authority and sovereignty. It was through Moses that all those things happened. Even Moses was rejected by the very same people who had witnessed firsthand all the loving power of their God. They had seen the plagues. They had seen Egypt fall. They had seen themselves delivered. They had seen the sea split. They had walked right through it themselves. They had followed this pillar of cloud by day and this pillar of fire by night. What more proof do you need that God is right there with you? Delivering you, rescuing you through Moses. You'd think they would respect Moses. But they don't. God's truth tellers are never appreciated in their time. They just will not learn. Despite what their eyes and ears have beheld, the people abandoned God with God in their midst and turned their hearts back to Egypt where they had been slaves. So God frees them, delivers them, brings them to Sinai. They are now free. They are a people formed by God to be his special possession. And all they can think about, because Moses has been up that mountain for a while now. It's been like 40 days. I wish we were back in Egypt, man. It was so good back there. Do you remember Egypt? Do you remember when we were slaves, and we had food, and they beat us with whips? Do you remember that, how great that was? I wish we could go back there. And meanwhile, all they have to do is crane their necks slightly, look slightly up, and they'll see this smoke-covered mountain rumbling with the power and authority of the divine God. All they have to do is look, and God's right there. And they ignore that, and turn their hearts back to Egypt, where God had just delivered them from. Can you we will never experience the power of God like they did here on earth. We just won't. God doesn't show up that way anymore. He gives us the Holy Spirit. It's a new power. But we'll never see earthquakes and pillars of fire and plagues raining down on our enemies. We'll never see that. They saw that. And it still wasn't enough. Their robes were still wet from their journey through the the split red sea. Their ears still jingled with the gold earrings they plundered off the Egyptians as they strolled away from their oppressors. And what did they do with that gold? They melted it down to make a calf. To worship an idol rather than the God who was right there in the midst about to give them law. Moses was up the hill that very moment carving the stones with sacred words of law. And the people rejected him and turned to his brother Aaron instead. Reveling in the work of their own hands... Rather than worshipping God for the freedom purchased by the power of his hands. They couldn't see the, the work and the glory and the goodness of, that God's hands had wrought. So they used their own hands to, to, to forge something new that they could follow and believe in. And how preposterous, how ridiculous, how despicable are they. And yet, how ridiculous, how despicable am I. Because I do the exact same thing. I have God right here in my midst. You know that presence of God? inside of me that i spoke of i have that and i still have my idols i still turn my heart to other things as we sang oh god let me let us be a generation that seeks your face O god of jacob the patriarch well my hands are unclean and impure i worship other idols don't you of course you do and so as ff bruce writes in his commentary on acts says there in the wilderness moses was the people's leader There they constituted Yahweh's assembly. There they had the angel of the presence in their midst. There they received through Moses the living words of God. What more could the people want? And that's a fair question. What more could they want? What more could they need from God? And it was all theirs in the wilderness, far from the promised land and the holy city. Even so, Bruce continues, they were not content. They disobeyed Moses and repudiated his leadership despite all that it still wasn't enough it wasn't enough god for them and so stephen his voice is ramping up and his rhetoric gets strong and this moses this same moses this very moses the same moses and he builds it builds and builds towards this he's indicating something to the sanhedrin again they had jesus in their midst The visible image of the invisible God, as Paul says in Colossians. You cannot see God. Even when God was was powerful on Sinai and his, his power was made visible, but God himself was not visible. Except briefly to Moses. Moses saw the back of his head or whatever. But God could not be seen. But in Jesus, he could be seen. In Jesus, God was made visible. I love how John says it too. So the word became flesh and made his home among us. He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness. And we have seen his glory. The glory of the Father's one and only Son. To John and to Paul, Jesus is is everything that happened at Sinai. All the power, all the beauty, all the the justice, all the love. in In a tiny, frail human body. All of that that shook the mountain of Sinai. That caused Moses to tremble and kick off his sandals in holiness. All of that is right there in Jesus. And you could see it. He was real. You could touch him. You could hear him. All of that power contained in a human body. The invisible made visible. And Stephen is saying to the Sanhedrin, you had Jesus in your midst. You saw God walk around and heal people and show love and teach, and you ignored it. You, you rejected it, in fact. For Paul, and for John, and for Stephen, having Jesus on earth was like Israel witnessing firsthand the power and holiness and love of their father during the Exodus. Just as Israel's forefathers could see God's authority through miracles, like the plagues and the Passover, they saw God's authority in those things. Well, so too could Jesus be seen. His power and authority was seen in how he walked on water and healed the demon-possessed and gave sight to the blind. The, The same as the plagues. They show God's power. Just as their forefathers could see God's will through the law that Moses had delivered in a very tangible, real way, this is what God says to you, so too was his will made known through the teachings of Jesus in exactly the same way. And just as God's love was made known through the way that he shaped and saved and guided his, his people Israel to Sinai, so too did Jesus exemplify God's love and how he healed and called and redeemed the lost sheep of Israel. Everything that God did through, through Moses on Sinai and in Egypt is happening, had happened again through Jesus. Just as Moses was rejected, so too was Jesus. If Israel's forefathers are guilty of missing the obvious presence of God in their midst, and, as Stephen says later on in chapter 7, were therefore abandoned by God because of it, then history is repeating itself in the case of the Sanhedrin. They are guilty of making the same mistakes as their true forefathers, and their true forefathers are not Moses and the patriarchs. That's not who they are truly the sons of, though they claim to be the sons of Abraham and the sons of Moses. That's not who their their true forefathers are. Their true forefathers are the hard-hearted, rebellious generation who had rejected their Redeemer and clung selfishly to the idols of self-righteousness, comfortable religion, and a prideful sense of this is how it is, and God's going to work how I want Him to work. Those are their true ancestors. The wayward, rebellious, ignorant generation who rejected truth and instead forged their own truth. Well, that was pride in Moses' day, and it was pride in Stephen's day, and it's pride today, right now. There are no constraints on how, or where, or when God will do his work. We like to put all kinds of boundaries on who's in, who's out, what's truth, what's not. And that's okay, as long as we hold lightly to those things. Because there is no constraints on how, where, or when God will do his work. He will make holy whatever place or whatever person he desires to make holy. Even me. As broken and as corrupt and as ugly as I am, inside and outside. Nothing special to look at. As broken and as corrupt as I am, he chose to make me holy. Totally unexpected. And I, I, I had very little to do with that process other than to accept it. It's the same for you. And therein lies the message of Stephen in regards to Moses. Holy places that command fearful obedience and humble worship, far from the expected locations. Life-giving truth-tellers with a divine message ignored and rejected. Why? Because of pride and ignorance. The mistakes of God's people throughout history keep coming back again and again like Elmer Fudd being tricked repeatedly by that waskowy wabbit. Our job is to not be fooled and fall into the cycle of history as they did. Our job is to break that cycle and not make the same mistakes. We too must heed the warning of Stephen. God is alive and he is at work and he has truth to tell us that we desperately need to hear. It may be unexpected or it may be obvious. The question is, Will we lay down our pride and accept it? Will we be changed by his life-giving words, the word of God made flesh, Jesus Christ? Will we be changed? Or are we doomed to repeat history and build our own idols while we reject his truth-telling? Like a Bugs Bunny cartoon, it's the same old tricks every time. Will they continue to blow up in our face? Or will we find our God beyond the borders of our expectations and receive life? I'm going to flesh that out a little bit more, that thinking in two weeks. Uh, next week, we'll look at the tabernacle and the temple, and many of these same themes will come up again, because that's what Stephen is really harping on the Sanhedrin about. But I love those three principles. I love the idea of a God not confined to any one place, of of our ability to worship him and his presence to be found anywhere. And the, the fact that people will deny and reject his truth-tellers, The fact that we have those warnings in scripture tells me that we can break that cycle that we can lay down pride and we can accept truth when we see it and hear it we can and in fact we'd better or we're just doomed to repeat the cycle so let's pray god thank you for how you called moses and made him holy and i thank you for how you call us and make us holy as well we are just as unworthy just as unexpected We are foreigners in a foreign land ourselves, and I thank you that you call us and shape us and send us into our broken world to bring light and life, life life-giving words. Father, I pray that we wouldn't fall into the same mistakes of the Sanhedrin, that we would would hear you and see you and, and know you and not ignore you or reject you. I pray that we would be your people who hear your voice and know your voice, just as you know our names and know our uh, know who we are. I pray that we would know you. Thank you that you call us to unholy places to bring holiness. Thank you that you call us as broken people and you redeem us, you deliver us, just as Moses redeemed and delivered Israel. In all these things, Father, it's unexpected, but we trust it, we believe it, and we love you for it. And we pray these things in your powerful name.